Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're talking about one of the biggest challenges in commercial fisheries across North America right now, the labor market, specifically recruiting and retaining experienced crew members for commercial fisheries. We're going to hear from two people who are deeply familiar with these trends, and we'll start by making a visit to Texas. My name is Andrea Hansen. I'm the executive director of the Texas Shrimp Association, and I've been here approximately nine years this organization has been, um, it was established back in 1950, so it's been around a really long time. So our organization, not only does it, you know, it spends a little bit of its time uh, marketing and promoting Texas wildcat shrimp, but probably 90% of the time I'm spent dealing with issues and, and reg- possible regulations that are either put in place or are coming our way. Like in most fisheries, the cost of doing business as a shrimper has increased over the years. But Andrea says that, generally speaking, the price of wild-caught shrimp has more or less stayed the same. Unfortunately, you know, the cost of shrimp actually in today's market, I take out the couple of weeks because our shrimp actually went sky high. And that's not very good for us. We don't like it to go that high because people stop eating shrimp. Um, But for the past 30 years, our shrimp actually is the same price. When you go into a grocery store, it's the same price today as it was 30 years ago. And that's due to the flood of the imported shrimp that came in in the 90s that the government allowed and it just suppressed our shrimp prices. But when you factor that into the cost of operating one of these vessels, it's increased by three times. That doesn't leave much room for a profit. So unfortunately, the industry is a declining industry. Um, It's kind of stabilized over the last few years. So our our job as this organization is to protect this industry on all fronts, whether it be safety, uh, working with the government, telling our story, letting people know what we're going through. One of Andrea's main jobs with the Shrimp Association has been to advocate for the industry, which includes educating the shrimp-eating public, as well as lawmakers, about the realities of the industry. The majority of consumers or just people on the street, and even lawmakers, they have this image of this cute little idyllic shrimping vessel, a small boat. You know, in the background of where you're eating nice golf shrimp at a restaurant, you can see it floating by in flat waters, and it just looks so cute and harmless. And that is not the case. So these commercial fishing vessels, they have to stay out at sea for at least 45 to 60 days in order for us to, to try and make some form of profit. You know, this is not the most profitable industry. And it's kind of like farming, but without insurance. And I say that because my my husband is 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 a, a previous farmer and we also, we always talk about the, the comparisons between the two. And I'm like, no, honey, the tractor and the, and the dirt is there. You know, these guys go out on this vessel in rough water, sometimes um, 12 to 14 foot swells. I saw on the internet one time, this guy, a couple of guys had stuck a GoPro down uh, uh, below the, the, the boat. And when these uh, trawlers are trawling, 
it showed thousands of sharks just swimming underneath the the boat. And then I later learned that a big percentage of people who die in this industry fall over for whatever reason, because it's rough, they're going to get eaten by sharks. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. Now, when I show them that on a YouTube video, they're like, oh my God, we had no idea. You know, and these guys work at night. They work hard. They work long hours and it's dangerous. I mean, again, a lot of these guys go overboard or a lot of them get stuck in the winches. I could tell some horrible stories about that. These dangerous conditions are of huge concern to Andrea and the Texas Shrimp Association and are a main focus of her work with the fleets. My number one hotspot would be the safety, safety of the crew. Um, I hear so many stories of what goes on at it. See, most of these guys cannot afford insurance. Um, my husband and myself included in that. So we sit on pins and needles every night when that boat's out in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night fishing in rough water. A lot of people don't know how rough that water is in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but just a couple of weeks ago, it, it knocked out a bunch of windows, uh, blew out the windows in some of these fishing vessels when a, a cold front came through. So, you know, we're talking a rough body of water. So that scares me more than anything is, is the safety. And then, of course, our number one issue right now is finding a crew for our boat. In this podcast, we've talked a lot about the risk that commercial fishermen take on to be able to bring wild-caught seafood to consumers. There's, of course, the inherent risk of the weather, of not knowing what you'll catch, but there's also the risks taken through assuming significant costs in buying a vessel, insurance, gear, and in hiring crew, which I really love how Andrea describes that here. Our vessels are not the small vessels that uh, fish in the bay. These vessels are anywhere from 80 to 125 feet. They're huge. And so you take one of those vessels, and I laugh because with my husband, I bought our first fishing vessel. You know, we spent, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars on the vessel, put another $50,000 in equipment, hired four guys that we don't know anything about, put $40,000 worth of fuel on it. And I remember us saying a prayer when it went out the jetties because it's going out in a rough body of water. We're not going to hear from them for 45 days. That's scary. And that's risky. Now, you might imagine that the risky nature of this fishery combined with the long trips can make it tough to find the right crew. And you'd be right. As with many fisheries around the continent, shrimpers are finding it harder and harder to recruit local crew. There simply aren't very many people interested in entering the industry, which means captains and whole fleets must look elsewhere for not just workers, but experienced workers who can do the job safely and effectively. During my interview with Andrea, she talked about the fleet's inclusion of workers who come from outside of the United States on special visas that specifically allow them to work in the commercial fishing industry. Trying to hire somebody, um, which we've done a study, the Texas Shrimp Association did a study in 2017 when we were not allowed to receive hardly any um, foreign visa workers who were experienced workers. And, and again, we've been using that program for years and it's worked well for us. We did an estimate. We worked with Sea Grant and, and we estimated that our industry was losing about a million dollars a day just by not having the labor force to go out on these vessels to either harvest the shrimp safely, um, take care of the shrimp. Or again, a lot of these guys and me included, I will not put somebody on my vessel that has no less than six months experience. That's the main key. Again, a lot of people think that we're taking away American jobs. You know, I'm like, bring us somebody who knows what they're doing on a fishing vessel and and knows the safety risk 
Um, and we'll give them a shot, but we're not going to hire somebody just off the street to put on our vessel because it's just not going to work. Somebody's going to get injured. And I don't like to operate my business that way. It's just too scary for everybody involved. So our biggest issue and our biggest challenge, again, number one is finding somebody that's actually capable of doing this job. Now, we heard a little bit about temporary foreign workers in Texas fisheries in our last episode, but it's important to understand that visa programs for temporary foreign workers and the number of visas that are allowed across all fisheries that may need to hire foreign labor are all subject to change based on the priorities of whatever current administration is in power. Andrea talked about how a previous change to this program impacted hiring practices for her fleet, who have relied upon foreign labor for the last 20 to 25 years. You know, ever since the returning worker language expired in a piece of legislation, I think that was somewhere around 2015, 2016, um, we've had issues. So 2017, I think, was probably one of the roughest years because I don't think any of the shrimpers received any um, seasonal foreign workers. So we did a study and I think a quarter of the industry chose to go ahead and hire a, a U.S. citizen that did not have any experience whatsoever. And unfortunately, we found that 97% of those workers wanted off the boat within the first week. Now, and, and, and I tell people that and they're like, well, go go hire somebody else. Well, the problem is that vessel may be fishing over in Louisiana or um, the Galveston area, and I'm located down in Brownsville. That boat has to travel back to the dock. We can't hold the, the person hostage. I've been asked that question a lot. They're like, why don't you just keep them on the boat? No, that's that's not a, a good situation to have. Um, so we immediately turned that boat around, come back, and, and the trip costs, you know, a thousand to a couple thousand in fuel. And then every night during peak season, we lose anywhere from four to six thousand dollars in fishing. So it's extremely expensive for us um, to to go that route to to even try and train somebody when we know there's only maybe less than a one or two percent retention rate. It just seems like in this industry, the people that that work well out on these vessels, they need to be born in this industry, uh, grew up on a boat and, and and have salt water in their veins. You know, those are the guys and gals that, that do fairly well. They either love it or hate it. And it's not an easy industry. And again, we're not asking somebody to come over and pull weeds and mow the yard or clean a room or nail some boards. We're asking somebody to leave their family for 45 or 60 days in one of the most dangerous industries and go out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and uh, try and, you know, harvest as much shrimp as possible. It, it's just not it's not an industry that people are just dying to jump in and take over this this job. This story blows my mind. A three percent retention rate for domestic first time crew. That is a pretty mind boggling number. And I think it points to the value of being able to hire experienced fishermen to safely harvest our seafood and the importance of policymakers in understanding those needs. And for Andrea, that's a major hurdle. The pathways to hiring temporary foreign workers are sometimes politically contentious. And so Andrea invests a lot of her time in educating those in seats of decision-making power about her industry. Our industry is not a growing industry, so we're not going to come back every year and ask these lawmakers to increase the number of workers they bring over, um, which exactly is what has been the problem. So each year, I assume we're probably going to need less and less uh, foreign workers. So, and we don't need that much. We don't even show up on the pie chart in terms of how many workers we we use. I think more people probably cross the Gulf of Mexico illegally every day than what we use in an entire season. 
And that's that's frustrating because they can fix it so easy and keep this industry alive and 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 um, I don't want to say thriving, but at least keep it alive and stable to where we we are able to take these vessels out and fish in peak season. As of right now, it's so difficult to even know if we're going to get our our workers. As of right now, um, this morning I got off a conference call with a, a visa company, and he was telling me that you know these guys maybe have a 50-50 chance of receiving their workers. How do you prepare your industry to go out? And, and fish when you don't know if you're going to have a crew. And um, so it, it's just, it's it's an issue that's jumped high on our radar list. Actually, it's jumped above foreign uh, shrimp and um, government regulations to the number one issue. In addition to their needs for access to temporary foreign workers, Texas shrimp fleets also face the same phenomena that we're seeing across North American fisheries, a so-called grain of the fleet. A grain of the fleet essentially means a rise in the average age of active fishermen and a lack of younger fishermen to replace them as older generations age out of their fisheries. Combined with high fuel prices, Andrea has seen fewer boats who can afford to take part in the fishery at all. And of course, just like you hear with with every fishing industry, um, it's termed what what we call a graying industry. You know, the the, the captains and and the crewmen on the the vessels, um, they're getting older, um, and there's not anybody to replace them. I mean, I, what scares us to death right now, and this may be going down a, a, another topic to discuss, but uh, with fuel prices the way they are, and I know at least in Texas, everybody's bringing their boats into tie um we cannot fish we won't even make our season trip with fuel prices like this so the other issue with that besides having to tie the boat up and not making any money is what do we do with our crew uh, my husband and i've had the same crew working for us for you know at least 10 years they're, they're great guys we take care of them but um just the other day we had two of them call and say we're sorry we're gonna have to go find jobs because we realize you're not gonna be able to send the boat out so we're fixing to have an extreme I, a catastrophic situation happen um, where fuel prices have gotten so high, the boats are going to tie up and compounding on that is the, the um, lack of crew. And, and, and we can't afford to pay these, these guys X number of months. We don't know how long this problem is going to last. I mean, if we had to keep the guys on the vessel and tie up for a month, we would do that. We would pay them to keep them on there, but you know, we don't know how long this issues that, you know, the fuel price is going to remain that high. So as of right now, the boats are coming in and, and tying up and it, it, it you know, it's, it's not looking good for our industry this year. Now, something that caught my ear earlier was Andrea mentioning that her family's fishing boat, and it sounds like others in their fleet as well, is uninsured. Given the major upfront costs of purchasing and equipping a boat, one would think that insurance would be a really important part of that fisheries puzzle. But Andrea explains that for many fishermen, the cost of insuring their boats is just prohibitive. My husband and I, our fishing vessel probably worth with everything on it right now, you know, maybe 400,000. Insurance, we would probably have to pay anywhere from 25 to 30,000 to just insure the hull. So if that boat goes down, it may insure up to 200,000. Um, and you can also have some personal injury on that, but it only goes up to maybe 50 to 100,000. And I'm just telling you right now, if, unfortunately, if somebody, um, you know, gets extremely, uh, injured or uh, worse, you know, dies out at sea, your little insurance policy of $100,000 is not going to cut it. Um, so, you know, and I've been in businesses long enough to know that one lawsuit can can wipe you out. 
that's probably the riskiest part of this industry to me. Now, I've talked to other shrimpers who've been in this years. They don't even think about it. They're like, you know, it's in God's hand. I'm more of a... um, I want everything to be insured, but we just can't. We just can't afford to pay twenty five to thirty thousand on each fishing vessel to insure it, especially if it's only going to cover maybe half the cost if something happens to that vessel. So we've heard about some of the challenges Texas shrimp fleets are facing and the incredibly tough situation that they are in this year. But let's go now to another expert who can help us understand other factors that are compounding a tough labor market for commercial fisheries. I'm Jess Hathaway. I'm a senior consultant with Ocean Strategies, which is a marine resources consulting firm. And we are now national. We're based in Seattle and Alaska, and I'm located in Portland, Maine. I just transitioned to Ocean Strategies about a month ago, so that was in April of 2022, and for the 16 years before that, I was with National Fisherman Magazine, which is a U.S. domestic commercial fishing trade publication, and I was editor of that publication for 11 years. So I have a broad-based knowledge of our national fisheries, but less of a, a specified knowledge of any one particular fishery. To kick off our conversation, I asked Jess to share how she's seen issues of labor and crew recruitment and retention change in the commercial fishing industry during her career. It's definitely gotten worse. Um, The first thing I think we have to do is acknowledge the effects that privatization have had on our fishery. Uh, The push to individual quotas, specifically in the United States, but I know this is happening globally, um, I think they were designed to make our fleets easier to manage. And certainly there have been some benefits as a result. However, the rate of consolidation that results from quota implementation has led to a significant loss of infrastructure and also a top-down heavy power structure in those fisheries. Consolidation in some fisheries also led to a loss of political power. Um, You know, when you have fewer commercial fishermen, you have fewer voices speaking out on behalf of the industry. And that industry contributes significantly to our domestic food supply. Sometimes people, I think, forget that commercial fishermen are not advocating just for themselves and their jobs and their livelihoods, but also for our entire domestic wild seafood supply. And when you look at it on a global scale, you're talking about our global wild seafood supply. So if you look at the Gulf of Mexico reef fish fleet, for example, that fishery underwent IFQ implementation, faced considerable consolidation, and that led to widespread loss of jobs and infrastructure. And then when those sacrifices that 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 fleet made paid off and the biomass bounced back rather quickly, quicker than I think most people expected, the local and regional politicians immediately began working to give more of that quota share to hobby fishermen, recreational fishermen, who did not suffer anywhere near the same consequences of the commercial fleet. They did not lose their livelihoods as a result of the effort to reduce fishing efforts. But, you know, when you look at the whole picture, who is going to check these people? There are thousands of recreational fishermen for every single commercial fisherman. So who are the politicians feeling compelled to answer to? So loss of political power is a significant issue with um, consolidation and privatization. Jess's comments here about privatization of fisheries are really interesting, in part because this is such a hot button issue in some fleets, particularly in Canada. 
and in part because the implementation of quota-based fisheries does contribute, in part, to safer commercial fisheries. As we've touched on in past episodes, a quota-based fishery allows fishermen to fish when the weather is good, when their gear is working, and when conditions are generally safer. But as Jess describes, it also creates changes to accessing ownership of a fishery. And with that can come some negative outcomes, such as job loss. When you talk specifically about job loss, if you look at the Bering Sea crab fleet out of Alaska, they saw a similar loss of jobs with consolidation to IFQs. And I think it's easy for a lot of people to imagine, you know, in a capitalist country that when you have a smaller pool of jobs, you must get more applicants for each job and therefore you have the best people on those boats. And I think that can be true in the first year or two following a major consolidation. But what many people find with physical work, like commercial fishing, is that when you can't find a job, you move on to something else. You move on to a different industry. And this was all happening pre-COVID. So then you add a global pandemic that has everyone thinking more about their health, their mental health, health care. And then you have more blue collar and entry level and service jobs offering benefits and a living wage. And that just exacerbates the gap between the crews that are already needed and who's willing to walk the docks to find work. Jess brought up some really interesting ideas in our interview, particularly about how we manage fisheries. She pointed out that fisheries management usually revolves around stock health and yield, but argues that the impact of management on fishing communities should also be considered. And I will say there's been a lot of effort toward improving safety, which has been great. But, you know, biomass and yield have been really the only things that have been paramount in changing our management strategies. And we have to look at the communities that are being affected when we lose these jobs, when we lose boats, and when we lose infrastructure. It's whole communities that are that are dying and they're going away. Another challenge of privatization that Jess points out here is how it makes fisheries less flexible and resilient to natural variations in stock abundance or in run strength. Another thing that happened with consolidation and IFQs is that fishermen, you know, the people who now own the quotas are less flexible. So when you're you're locked into a species and when that species biomass is down, you can either just stop fishing or you can stop fishing and wait for a disaster declaration. But what that means is that that job is not consistent. The work is not consistent. So what we're asking people, you know, who are taking greater risk with offshore fisheries is to commit to this high risk job that requires a lot of time away from home and may or may not have health benefits and hopefully pays a living wage, but it may or may not be there when you need it. Um, So it's, we're hitting fishermen from both ends. We're putting all the risks on to them and they're not getting any of the benefits of those high risk jobs. It used to be that a high risk commercial fishing job was really appealing because the pay was there and you could do it with fewer skills. And that's just not the case anymore. Crews are smaller, boats are more automated. You have to have more expertise to work on these boats safely And the whole dynamic has changed and unfortunately has not benefited commercial fishing crews. What Jess is describing here is a sort of rigidity that privatization has introduced into commercial fisheries. Fishermen may have the guarantee of their quota allocation, but they then face the new challenge of being locked into a particular fishery due to their investment in that quota. 
Another aspect of that rigidity is how the privatization of fisheries access has made them more valuable, which is great if you're a fisherman who was granted into the quota system, but isn't so great if you're a young fisherman now trying to buy your way in. The people who were granted access through IFQs, they didn't have to buy in. They had to have the experience and the time out on the water to have access to IFQs. So they did not pay out for them, except in their time and their experience. And so now they're holding these very valuable quotas and that this is a test of the system, whether or not it works, who can now come in and buy these quotas uh, on a cruise share, you know, very, very few people. And where is this money coming from? I mean, I just don't understand (laughs) how we thought people could buy into the system once we created it. As far as I know, there was no planning on that end. And so young fishermen are struggling to come up with the capital to buy quotas. And in some cases, if you have enough money even to get the boat and the quota, that's still not enough. You still have to lease quota from someone else on top of that. And so the investment we're asking young people to make is debilitating in in many cases. And it's happening in some places, but not as quickly as it needs to. In essence, the issues many fisheries are seen with privatization are based in decisions about whether the market or communities are going to guide how fisheries are accessed and managed. And interestingly, this is not a brand new problem. Issues of quota and power consolidation and the negative impact this trend tends to have on fishing communities have already popped up in places like Iceland and Alaska. And some efforts have been made to sort of rewind this clock and return control of fisheries to the communities in which they are based. But for a variety of reasons, that is a really tough thing to do. But as Jess says, that local control really is paramount. One of the most important components of any sort of permit banking um, or quota reallocation is that it has to be managed by that community. It cannot be managed by a private entity or someone who does not have stake in that community and that fishery, period. I think there's another important element to consider here, and that is the generational shift in attitudes towards work-life balance and the balance of profit and quality of work and life. This can be a somewhat contentious topic. And as a researcher, over the last few years, I have often heard from older generations who are struggling to hire crew that, quote, young people just don't want to work anymore, or, you know, young people just aren't interested in fishing. But at the same time, I see many young people entering fisheries where their ability to access ownership of that fishery remains intact and their ability to profit and have some sort of work-life balance is also maintained. Jess also has been seeing this trend, and I think she sums up really nicely why some fisheries are struggling for crew and why some don't. I'm not exactly a millennial. I'm more of a Gen X, but um, I think it's happening with my generation as well. We are waking up and saying, you know what? I don't want to sacrifice my whole life and all of my time with my family just to survive. That's not worth it to me. And we have options. So I think that is something that really needs to be considered is that everyone has options, some people more than others. But when you look at fisheries that are well-managed and are profitable, like 
you know, Alaska salmon fisheries have a ton of buy-in from young people. They're also accessible. So well-managed, still profitable, accessible, abundant biomass. You have buy-in from young people. And it's not because they're not working long hours. The Alaska salmon fisheries are, you know, it's a seasonal fishery and summer is their boom time. And trust me, they are working 12-hour shifts and sometimes around the clock. Look at Bristol Bay. Those people work constantly to get their fish in their, you know, four to six week season. So I don't think you can say that young people aren't willing to do the work, but I think young people are willing to do the work if it's going to pay off, you know, people will go work Crystal Bay or Alaska salmon for the summer, because that means they can spend the winter with their families. And so there have to be trade-offs. And I think that's what we're seeing is a, is a reevaluation of what are the trade-offs here. I am seeing younger people enter fisheries in New England, in the Gulf of Mexico, in Chesapeake Bay, and in California, but they're strategic about it. So I think we have to look at where people are entering fisheries and see why they're entering there and what's working for them. And I think what you'll find in most cases is that they're entering places where they have an access point, that's most important, um, and where they can do the work for the right kind of pay for them and, and other kinds of payoffs. I mean, are young fishermen getting healthcare benefits? Are they getting the mental health care that they need? I think if you look around at the successful young fishermen in this industry, you'll get a lot of really strong answers and they will tell you that they love what they do just as much as the older generation does. Before we wrap up, I want to share one last comment from Jess, who pointed out that structuring fisheries so that they allow the entry and participation of new and young fishermen isn't just about having available workforce, so certainly that's a big part of it. It's also about having new ideas and ways of thinking to help fisheries adapt to the many rapid changes we are seeing in today's societies and environment. If you do have fewer young people coming in, you have fewer fresh ideas coming in. So where are you getting your ideas for how to adjust and adapt and change to the way things are now? Every, the whole world around us is changing every day. And I think right now we're seeing rapid changes. So the industry has to adapt to that as well. Now, we always try to capture a few key ideas from each episode, and I think this week I have two notable take-home messages. First, I learned from Andrea Hance that temporary foreign labor and the necessary visas and immigration processes that facilitate their participation in American fisheries is a really critical part of the workforce for some fleets. Building better understanding in consumers and policymakers about the need for this skilled labor is an ongoing challenge. Second, I really enjoyed Jess Hathaway's insights into the way that generational attitudes and privatization of fisheries is impacting the available labor pool and appreciate her encouragement for fisheries to manage not just for stock health, but also for fishing community health as well. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Andrea Hans, Executive Director of the Texas Shrimp Association, and from Jess Hathaway, Senior Consultant and Project Manager for Ocean Strategies and former editor of the National Fisherman Publication. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at 
fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at N-E-C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod. Though we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast, please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees, and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Stay sailing.